Please do keep your Bibles open there at Mark chapter 14. That's where we'll be this morning. Have you ever read a biography? Here's one. A biography is an account of someone's life written by someone else. This example is a biography of the English novelist Charles Dickens. It's fairly weighty. You can easily guess the kind of things that it covers. Parents and ancestry, birth, childhood, early life, education, formative influences, development of his life's work, marriage, children. I think he had 10. Friendships, significant connections, beliefs, opinions, major life events, death. I haven't read it, by the way, but this is a really good doorstop. (laughs) Now, that's what we expect from a biography. With that in mind, the official biographies of Jesus are really strange. There are four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're much shorter than that, but that's what we'd expect in the ancient world. The strangest thing about them, though, is the percentage of material spent on Jesus' death. Take the Gospel of Mark, which is the one we've been working through in our series, the story that changes everything. Mark, most scholars think that this was the first one that was written down. It was written within living memory of the people who took part in it. The account begins when when Jesus is about 30 years old. There's almost nothing about his parents or family, nothing about his birth, childhood, education, or early life. It jumps straight into his career, age 30, as an itinerant teacher and miracle worker gives a lot of coverage to time spent with a small group of followers called the disciples but the death the death is clearly the focus the last quarter of the book slows right down and focuses on the tiny details surrounding Jesus betrayal trial crucifixion death and resurrection even before that Right back at the beginning of the book, chapter 2, verse 20, Jesus is already hinting about his death. It says in chapter 2, verse 20, Jesus says, The time will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and on that day they will fast. And then there was a hinge point right in the middle of the book where we move from asking, Who is Jesus? to What has he come to do? Back in chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus asks, Who do people say that I am? And the apostle Peter gets the right answer. You are the Messiah. Brilliant. Yes. So what next? Answer. Jesus begins to to teach them that he, the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And on the third day rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Yes, he did speak plainly. Not only then, but in chapter 9, verse 30 and 32 as well. And then in chapter 10, verse 32 to 34. And each time, his disciples, his closest friends and confidants, reveal their stunning ignorance. They try and tell him off. You shouldn't say that. You're not going to be killed. Or they try and jockey for position. Who's going to get the top seats in the kingdom administration? Stunning ignorance. But let's be careful, shall we? Because perhaps we are more like them than we care to admit. But Jesus keeps pressing the point. In chapter 12, he goes public with a dramatic story told in front of a large crowd about 
a landlord who builds a vineyard and rents it to some tenants, some tenant farmers. And the story climaxes with the landlord sending his only son to collect the rent. But the tenants kill the son and throw his body out of the vineyard. And everybody knows that Jesus has spoken this parable against the leadership of Israel, the official leadership. And so now they intensify their efforts to arrest him and have him put to death. And as that moment draws nearer, and now it's very near, Jesus takes every opportunity to teach and train his disciples, to prepare them for what is ahead. And in this passage today, we're taken into a very special moment. For the first time, Jesus explicitly makes the connection between what he has come to do and the story of salvation. The great story of God's work to redeem people, lost people to himself, that's been going on throughout history. And now Jesus will connect all of that history and show how it's culminating in him. He doesn't just give them a lesson, he gives them a meal. A meal. And this meal is so very important because in its essence, it teaches and shows us what Jesus' death is all about. This meal, bread and wine, is a very vivid reminder of his death. And so the meal is formative for us as those of us who are followers of Jesus. And over the centuries, it's been practiced millions of times in churches all around the world. We tend to call it the Lord's Supper or Communion. Different uh, traditions have different names for it. Now, what Mark gives us today in this reading is a front row seat at the first communion meal administered by the Lord Jesus himself. And it will explain, almost beyond words, what he's come to do. And right before this meal, two people react to Jesus in very different ways. One of them does a beautiful thing. The other one betrays him. So we're going to look at this passage, as you can see on the slide, under two headings. Firstly, a meal full of meaning. And secondly, reactions to Jesus. Two reactions to Jesus, beauty and betrayal. Firstly, a meal full of meaning. We take up the story in verse 12. We're going to jump in halfway through and circle back. Verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations? Now, look at that phrase. Um, the timing of where this is, when this is happening, it, Mark notes it very, very carefully. It's the first day of the festival of unleavened bread. That's bread made without any yeast in it. And it's customary on that day to sacrifice a lamb called the Passover lamb. And that is a key phrase. Hold on to it. We're going to come back to that. Now, there were several great festivals in the Jewish calendar, but the greatest one of all was the Passover. The Passover was the time when the Jews, who'd been celebrating this for over a thousand years, remembered their deliverance from slavery. They had been an oppressed people group under the cruel jackboot of the Egyptian overlords, particularly under the rule of Pharaoh, who was a cruel taskmaster. They'd, the Egyptians had actually practiced genocide on this group by killing uh, all the male babies at one point to stop them from uprising. They, they oppressed them cruelly. 
And they cried out for many, many years in their slavery, in their bondage. And eventually God heard them and remembered his promises to them and came and delivered them in some ama- an amazing way. First of all, he raised up a ma- an unlikely de- deliverer, a man called Moses, and sent him to go and confront Pharaoh. And over a series of signs, dramatic wonders, Pharaoh, God, through Pharaoh, delivered the people and brought judgment on the Egyptian slave masters. And the final one of these signs, we sometimes call them the ten plagues, was the most dreadful of all. And it was the death of the firstborn. God's divine wrath, his anger, his divine justice would be unleashed across that country. And that night, the firstborn in every household would die. Now, in this scenario, the only way to escape death and judgment that would come from God was refuge under the blood of a lamb. That night, they were told to bake their bread so fast, couldn't use yeast to let it rise just have it unleavened and and take a perfect spotless lamb and kill it and take its its blood and spread it over the the doorposts and the lintel of the door so that they were covered by the blood of this lamb and then they would eat their final meal in Egypt because God said you're going to leave in a hurry the Egyptians will finally let you go but the only way for their children to escape that severe judgment was by hiding under the blood of a lamb. That's what it's talking about when it, talk, it talks about sacrificing the Passover lamb. Now, clearly, this is very important to Jesus. Look again at verse 13. He sends his disciples, he gives them really clear instructions go into the city, you meet this guy carrying a jar of water, some kind of prearranged signal, follow him, speak to the owner of the house, give them this little bit coded message. The teacher asks, Where's my guest room? You notice he's not even giving his name. It's so dangerous for him to go into the city. He's going to eat the Passover with his disciples, and there'll be this large room upstairs, furnished and ready, and then go and make the preparations for us there. It's very important for Jesus. He knows the end is drawing near, but he is determined to celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples one last time because this meal is full of meaning, and he will give it to them as a key to understand his death. And then in verses 17 to 20, Jesus reveals this awful note of betrayal before he even explains the meal. He says, look, one of you is going to betray me. Four times he actually repeats this, verses 17 to 20. Uh, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. And they're saddened and they all deny it. It's one of the 12, he replied. One who dips bread into the bowl with me. Four times. He's trying to humble them. He's trying to show them they haven't got it all figured out. That they're weak and sinful. That even one of them is capable of betraying him. They need his grace. They haven't arrived. But they cannot imagine themselves doing such a thing. They still overestimate themselves as they've been doing all through the book. And they all deny it one by one. You see, when Jesus loves someone, he keeps showing them their capacity for sin. He keeps showing you. He keeps showing us our need, our absolute need for grace and mercy. Because until we see how spiritually incapacitated we are, how hopeless we are, then we will not be able to receive God's grace. 
As long as you think you're worthy, you cannot receive the grace of God. Do you know that? So where are you this morning? Do you still think that you're worthy? That you're almost good enough? You just need to try a bit harder. Do your best. Now if you are thinking that, dear friend, you are still unable to receive God's grace. You must come to the point where you realize, I'm just like those disciples. In verses 22 to 25, Jesus then turns to the meal and he does something staggering. When Jewish households celebrated the Passover, the head of the house would guide the meal and explain each element and tell the story of the Exodus as they went along. They would have traditionally four cups of wine. Each one would be introduced with a separate introduction. And this practice had been instituted right back in Exodus chapter 12. You can read about it there. And it had been practiced for centuries. It was a wonderful occasion. In fact, some years ago, my wife and I sat in as a, a, a Messianic Christian, a Jewish man from our old church, did the Passover meal with a large number of us, and it was a fantastic occasion. But Jesus here does something that no one else would dare to do. He reinterprets the Passover and makes it all about him. No one else would dare to do that. When he takes the bread, he prays and blesses it, he breaks it, he gives it to them, and then he makes it about himself. Take it. This is my body. And then when he takes that cup of wine, prays and blesses it, gives it to them, again, he makes it about himself. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. You see what Jesus has just done? On the eve of his betrayal, as he looks ahead to the most excruciating, shattering ordeal, he takes the time to give his disciples this meal full of meaning. What's the meaning? Here it is. Jesus is the Passover lamb. He will be sacrificed. His, his life will be poured out for many. And through his death, many will be delivered. Now the first Passover meal was instituted by a deliverer, Moses who led the people out of slavery. But the Lord's Supper was instituted by a far greater deliverer, Jesus. He will create a greater and universal people of God, leading them out from their slavery to sin and death. The first Passover meal centered around a lamb that was killed as a substitute. Remember, putting the blood over the doorframe. But Jesus doesn't pass around any meat here. Why not? He himself is the lamb. And as John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus, beginning of John's gospel, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Passover story teaches us that divine justice will fall on everyone. The Israelites don't get a free pass. In every home there would be a dead firstborn no matter who you were. The only way to escape was to put your faith in God's provision on a, of a sacrifice. You had to slay a lamb and put the blood around your door as a sign of your faith in God's mercy because you couldn't know how that would work. You just knew that that was what God had said. And any Israelite family who failed to do that would weep bitterly in the morning when they found their firstborn child dead. Many years later, the prophet Isaiah wrote a strange and beautiful prediction 
He spoke of a suffering servant who would rescue God's people from oppression once again. And he said, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Who was this suffering servant, this lamb, on whom God would lay the iniquity of us all? Now we know it was Jesus Christ. And at this meal full of meaning, he gives us a way of remembering and enacting what he did at the cross. This bread, broken, my body broken for you. This wine, poured out, is like my blood of the covenant, poured out for many. What does this show us about the cross? At least three things. It was a sacrifice. It was a substitution. And it was sufficient. Firstly, Jesus' death was a sacrifice, not an accident, not a tragedy, not even a moral example, primarily, although it has elements of that. Primarily, Jesus' death on the cross was a sacrifice that will take away punishment. The Bible says elsewhere, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. Why is that? Because sin... The punishment of sin is death. And when your blood is poured out, your life ebbs away. And so if the penalty for sin is death, then without the shedding of blood, there can be no taking away of sin. Jesus' death was a sacrifice. Secondly, it was a substitution. The Passover lambs of Old Testament times are always a bit mysterious. How does this um, fairly innocent-looking young creature take away and deal with sin? There's no kind of connection, is there? But now we know the answer. They were just pictures of the true lamb, the, the lamb of God, the only one who lived a perfect, spotless life and gave it up for you and me. And so thirdly, it is sufficient. Jesus' death was sufficient because he was perfect. His death is of infinite value. It can cover the sins of thousands? no millions of people we can add nothing to it except our sin we don't need to we're incapable of doing anything different and so Paul can write at the end of Romans chapter 8 there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus his blood has covered all your sins friends his blood availed for me so what do we need to do to receive this mercy. What do we need to do? I spent some months wrestling with this question when I was a young teenager. I kind of wanted something to do. Just give me the formula. You know, show me the, the hoop I have to jump through. Maybe it's some special form of prayers. I would look at other young Christians and think, what, what have they got that I don't have? I don't understand it. I went around asking people, what do I need to do? And the answer is, you don't have to need to do anything. It's already been done. All you have to do is receive his mercy. Take your stand under the blood. In other words, stop trusting in yourself. Stop trusting in your own efforts, your own goodness, your own religion, your own morality. Throw it away. You can't save yourself. 
but put your trust in Christ alone, the Lamb of God, and rest on him, rest on his goodness, and shelter under his blood. A meal full of meaning. As Jesus reinterprets the Passover and gives it to his church. And we're not celebrating it today. We should have. I didn't plan the program well enough. We did it last week. But we will soon and you'll know more about it then. Secondly, with all of that in view, we now go back to the first 11 verses of the chapter. And here we see, perhaps with a new perspective, two reactions to Jesus. One of them is beauty and the other is betrayal. Two people who know him well, close friends. Both of them look like followers. Yet at the crunch time, one of them does something incredibly beautiful and the other does something unspeakably awful. They are Mary and Judas. We don't read Mary's name here, but we know from one of the other gospels, it's her, the the sister of Lazarus, who Jesus has just raised from the dead. She's so full of gratitude. Now it's intriguing isn't it? Given the the weighty nature of all that's happening here, you know, with the powers scheming in Jerusalem and circling around and looking for a way to press in on Jesus. And we know that the sands of time are running low. And then here we have Mark, the writer, interrupts the story with this long account of a woman with a bottle of perfume. It's quite an interruption. And if you've been here during our series, you will know, I hope by now, that Mark loves sandwiches. Not the kind of sandwiches you have for lunch, but a literary device where Mark starts a story, interrupts it, and then resumes it. So the two halves on the outside are like the bread, and the middle bit's the filling. Mark's Gospel has about nine of these sandwiches. We've talked about a few over the series. And the key is, the different parts of the sandwich help to interpret what's going on in the middle. So here we have uh, another one. Have a look at chapter 14. It begins, verse 1 and 2, with uh, the the, the feasts coming up and the chief priests, the teachers of the law, are scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But they say, we're not going to do it during the festival or the people may riot. And then verse 10 and 11, notice how it, it resumes again. Verse 10, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And they were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. But in the middle, we have this story of this woman. Now, what do you think, what can we think about Judas? What a tragic figure. I mean, his name has gone down as the sort of archetypal traitor. You call someone a Judas. It's not a compliment. I, I don't think I remember a, a baby in my lifetime who I've known who's been called Judas. The name's not in fashion. He was one of the 12, one of the key guys, handpicked by Jesus to be part of his kingdom. He'd been there for the whole journey. He was there on the hillside when Jesus sat and taught them the wonderful Sermon on the Mount. He was there handing out a few loaves and fish and seeing somehow, miraculously, it was multiplied, and feeding 5,000 men plus women and children right out in the wilderness. He's there in the boat on the Sea of Galilee, terrified, when a furious storm blew up, and he sees Jesus calm it with a word. He's been there at countless healings, exorcisms. He's part of the inner circle. He's an intimate. He's lived with Jesus for three years on the road. That gives a friendship that nothing else can. Jesus had poured his life into Judas, He'd heard him teach and preach. He'd been sent by Jesus on mission trips. 
done all the things that Christians do. He'd seen the power of Jesus. He'd looked Jesus in the eye. He'd seen eyes of love look back. Even more, you know Judas had a special job in the 12 disciples? Did you know that? He has a special job. He was the treasurer. The one looking after the money. You only give that job to the one you trust, don't you? Our treasurer in our church, I trust him implicitly. Judas trusted with the money. But this is the guy who betrayed Jesus to death. We learn elsewhere that Judas went out into the night and struck a deal with the chief priests and teachers of the law. He sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Verse 11 says, they were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. Now, we've all heard of Judas. And the natural question is, how on earth could this happen? How could one of the most intimate, trusted disciples commit such wicked treachery? He must have known it would lead Jesus to a cruel death. 30 pieces of silver. Now, Mark doesn't answer that question explicitly, but remember the sandwich. In the middle, he inserts this story of the unnamed woman. We know her name was Mary. And this filling will draw out the sharpest contrast possible between true and false devotion. True and false devotion. Verse 3, Jesus is in a place called Bethany. It's a village a few miles out of Jerusalem. He's using it as a kind of base of operations uh, during the trip because he has to stay out of Jerusalem. We find Jesus reclining at the table. That's how people ate in those days. It's dinner time. He's in the house of a man with an unfortunate nickname, Simon the leper. I mean, presumably he was a former leper, but unluckily the name had stuck. And there the guys are lounging around telling leper jokes, eating, talking, and then something really extraordinary happens. This woman just comes in quietly with a jar made of alabaster. It says here, of very expensive perfume made of pure nard, and she breaks the jar and pours the perfume on Jesus' head in front of everyone. Now, the scent of that perfume must have filled the place There is Jesus in the middle of the room being treated like royalty. This is kingly. She's treating him like a VIP. She's also breaking all the rules. Firstly, in polite Jewish society, a woman would not come in to the fellowship of a group of men unless she was serving food. And secondly, she's just done something that most of the people in the room think is scandalous. She's just blown £30,000 on anointing Jesus. Yes, 30 grand. Oscar Wilde wrote that the cynic is a man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. Other people in the room are looking on and they know the value of that perfume. They are aghast. They're doing the sums. Verse 4, they are saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. The original language, you see it there in your footnote probably, says more than 300 denarii. And a denarius was a day's wage for an average worker. 
It would take more than a year for the average worker to earn the money to buy a jar of perfume like this. So it adds up to about £30,000. Now, what do you think about that gesture? Do you think it was a waste? A bit over the top? A bit extravagant? Just think of what you could do with £30,000. In a church, that would pay for so much ministry, wouldn't it? Well, just think what you could do for the poor, the homeless, those people who've been trafficked into Manchester, those that we see around who are struggling, asylum seekers. What do you could do with £30,000? You know how people wheel out the poor when they see something being wasted? So was it a waste? Not according to Jesus. Look at verse 7. He says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. She's done a beautiful thing to me. Why? Because the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. So in Jesus' mind, and bear in mind Jesus is always committed to the poor and gives to the poor and teaches to, to bless the poor. But on this occasion, the circumstances call for it. It's an exceptional gesture. He knows He's about to be betrayed and killed. He will be executed in the most violent and gruesome way. He will be spat upon, beaten. His beard will be torn out. He will be flogged, dragged through the streets and be so weakened by that stage of the ordeal that someone else will be forced to carry his crossbeam. That's just the start of it. He'll be stripped naked, nailed to a wooden cross and that will be dropped into a hole in the ground. The shock of that alone would often dislocate bones. And there he would hang until dead, the most excruciating, shameful way to die that the Romans could dream up. But there is more. Jesus will be abandoned by all his friends. Judas is just the start. There will be a total defection. Peter, his right-hand man, will swear blind that he never knew him. In his hour of need, they will all desert him. But there's more. There's another level that we can barely comprehend. The God of the Bible is a trinity of three persons, a triune God, a triunity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And through all eternity, they have been united in a communion of love, supremely happy. And at the cross, it is the will of the Father to crush him. And at the cross, it was the will of the Son to be crushed. Jesus said elsewhere, no one takes my life from me, I'd lay it down of my own accord. At his darkest hour, when all the lights went out, and even creation went dark, Jesus Christ cried out in dereliction, and he didn't cry out, why have all my friends betrayed me? He didn't cry out, I'm in absolute torment. No, there was something worse than even that. He cried out, my God, My God, why have you forsaken me? Until this moment, Jesus has always addressed God as Father. Intimate language, Abba, Father. And he taught his followers to do the same in the Lord's Prayer. But on the cross, he has lost his Father. And so he doesn't say Father, he says, my God, why? But of course, Jesus knew the answer. It was no mystery to him why the Father had forsaken him. Because it was the will of the Father to crush him. Why? Because through this death, 
this sacrificial lamb, he would bring many sons and daughters to glory. The spotless Jesus, who never knew a sin, became sin on the cross, so that in him, people like you and me could become the righteousness of God. He took our punishment far away. He buried it in the depths of the sea. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far his compassion took him. Do you, see, do you think it was a waste of perfume? Scholars tell us that in Jesus' time, women were largely excluded from careers that opened the possibility of earning large sums of money, like this perfume would cost, or even actually of buying an object of such value. So most likely, it was a family heirloom. It wouldn't be used, it would be kept safe and treasured and passed down because ever if the family was in dire need and the chips were down, they could reach for it and they'd have that, that cushion, that perfume they could sell and the money used to bail them out. You wouldn't use perfume like this, it was an investment. It was her life savings. Mark says she broke the jar. Broke it. It will never be used again. There's a totality about this gift. She's not just pouring out 10%. In a sense, she just poured out her entire net worth onto Jesus. She's poured out her security in a single gesture, which can only mean one thing. I'm putting my security in him now. Do you think it was a waste? Not at this moment. Before the hour of his greatest need, as he faces the violence of his death, as he pours out his life on the cross, as everyone betrays him, as he faces it, you know, he is human. He needs the encouragement, the comfort, the, the love of this magnificent gesture. Would anything less than pouring out the whole jar be worthy? Anything less would be an insult. And that is why the disciples are so awful here. Not just Judas, all of them. Because they really should have known better by now. All those years with Jesus, after the clear teaching, he's going to die in Jerusalem. What kind of response has it drawn from them? Nothing. They're just tutting at the woman. Yet here she is, she isn't even named here, in a former leper's house, coming out of the shadows, out of the margins, comes an act of generosity that surpasses all others. No wonder Jesus says what he does in verse 9. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her, and that is coming true right now. So we just have one question to close with. Why did she do it? The answer is that somehow she's made a connection between the gospel and suffering, and no one else has. She's made this connection that the gospel, the great good news that Jesus has been announcing all through this book, is bound up in his suffering. And that understanding has drawn out love from her heart. It has moved her to tenderness and compassion. She loves him. She's grateful to him for all that he's done for her, for all that he means to her, for what he's about to suffer. And so when she heard he's coming back to Bethany to the house, she thought, how can I honor, honor him? Don't have much. And then 
She thought about the perfume. It was the best thing that she had. So as we look at this story, Mark has put these two reactions here on purpose, you know, to make us reflect. The reaction of Judas and the reaction of Mary to, to Jesus. So I need to ask, in what way are we like Judas? Oh, I'm not like Judas. Hold on. You know, a non-Christian person, some of you here, you don't trust Jesus, you're just looking in. We're glad you're here. When you sin, you sin against God as your creator. You sin against God the king. You sin against God the judge, the magistrate. But when a Christian sins, a Christian sins against Jesus, their friend. When a Christian sins, they sin against Jesus, their lover, the one who gave him. You know what he did for you. And so when you sin, it is more offensive, more heartbreaking to the Son of God than when a non-believing person sins. We are like Judas. So we must ask today, and I'm not going to, no one to speak, but just to think quietly for a moment. Bearing this in mind that every sin, believing friend, is a personal betrayal of Jesus. What is your pet sin? The thing that you are coddling and that has a place in your life it should never have. Do you see now that it's a personal betrayal of Jesus? The one who loved you and gave himself for you. You know, we sin for many reasons. The Anglican confession has, is a wonderful nuance on this. We sin through weakness we sin through omission and for our own deliberate fault but those of us who claim the name of Christ should do all we can to keep our lives free from sin where are we like Judas and where must we repent now and don't be crushed by this the mark of a true disciple is they repent and know the glad forgiveness of Jesus right away you understand that? Judas was very sorry for what he did. In fact, he despaired. He went out, and we know from another part of the Bible, he actually took his own life. But he never repented. He despaired. The mark of a true believer is they will repent. They will turn again to Jesus and receive fresh grace. So as we close, are you ready to give everything you have to honour this man, Jesus, this paradoxical king who gives us this meal full of meaning. False devotion likes a bit of religion but is offended by extremes and people going over the top. Just don't get carried away. But true devotion knows no limits. I've said this, told this story many times. It's so good I'm going to tell it one more time about the Wall Street executive who had a salary like a telephone number. She was a, not a Christian, but she heard the gospel and she met a pastor called Timothy Keller and said to him, if what you are saying is true, there is nothing that Jesus could not ask of me. If what you're saying is true, there's nothing that Jesus could not ask of me. What is he asking of you? What's the cost 
to you of following Jesus? Is following him hurting your bank account? You know, someone who believes the gospel should die poorer than if they'd been a non-Christian because they'll have given so much away to the gospel ministry and to the poor. Is it costing you in other ways, your reputation, the approval of that person who you so want to be liked by, but actually they despise Christians, so you keep quiet? What is it costing you to follow Jesus? What's the perfume? Can you break it? Pour it out on his head. Let's pray.